0: Let's jump right into the text. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Now, the use of the word sojourn there connects the migration to Egypt With the prophecy spoken to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. Way back in chapter 15, God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. God told Abraham, that his descendants would go down to Egypt and he told them that they would not stay in Egypt, but rather God would bring them out and he would give them great possessions. The sons of Jacob here indicate that they were obviously familiar with those promises. They are not moving to Egypt. They are staying in Egypt as strangers for a time. And that's very significant. God's people are always strangers in the land of Egypt, if we can use that phrase. We are never to settle in. We are never to get too comfortable. As the old song goes, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That is the attitude all people of faith must maintain. Now, in the book of Hebrews, this theme is picked up and expanded upon at some length. The apostle says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Speaking of Abraham here. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham, the father of faith, was a traveler. He was living in tents. He never settled down. He was never truly at home in this world. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That is the pattern and the picture of faith. The apostle goes on in Hebrews 11 to say, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. The staff was a symbol of sojourning. The apostle was saying that Jacob was a traveler right up to the end of his life. He gave his last words and blessings, as it were, over the head of his staff. Even in death, he was preparing to travel. He was a sojourner in life and in death. That's what the apostle is saying. And that's a very important theme In the life of faith, this idea of sojourning also called to mind the need to be charitable and merciful towards earthly travelers. The fact that they had lived in Egypt for 400 years as strangers made the Israelites very sensitive to the vulnerability of travelers. So we have all these verses in the Old Testament reminding the Jewish people to be kind to strangers. We think of Exodus 22:21, 21, for example, which says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So this idea of sojourning, is deeply embedded in our spiritual DNA. It reminds us that we must be kind to travelers, to strangers, to displaced peoples of every kind. Because we are travelers. We are strangers. We are displaced people of a spiritual kind. This world is not our home. And therefore, we are always vulnerable to the shifting whims and humors of the crowd. And that, in turn, should make us sympathetic to those who are passing through, those with no permanent rights, those who have nowhere else to go. Travelers watch out for one another as they meet each other on life's hard and winding roads. Verse 5, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you, The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. This scene is masterfully depicted. Jacob is a portrait in elderly wisdom and gravitas. Now, we don't know for sure how old this pharaoh was. Joseph says that he has become a father to pharaoh, which may indicate that this is a young man. And Joseph has been his tutor and advisor, and that may well be the case. But here it is clear that he is awed by the presence of Jacob. Jacob teaches Pharaoh and blesses Pharaoh. Well, we know for a fact that in the Bible, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Pharaoh views Jacob as a sage and a prophet, and he listens to Jacob like a man would listen to a survivor from a bygone era. Jacob says that he's 130 years old, but that that's nothing compared to the years of his father's. And this is a reminder to us that these stories take place during a hinge in the ages. After Noah's flood, the ages listed in scripture go steadily downwards, but the family of blessings seems to be experiencing this diminishment at a reduced pace, and that itself may be an effect of walking so closely with the creator God. We don't know. What we know is that Pharaoh is awed by Jacob. And we know that Jacob views the world from a unique and elevated perspective. He says that life is shorter and harder than once it was. Note that. See, the Bible teaches the very opposite of evolution. Evolution of the biological, philosophical, and social varieties espouses a belief in constant progress. The world is always getting better and life is always reaching higher. And this, of course, over time encourages a sort of chronological snobbery, to steal a phrase from C.S. Lewis. We tend to think that the old are dumber, duller, and dimmer. They live downstream from our times and attainments. But the view of the Bible and the view of the ancient world was actually the opposite. The Bible sees fallen humanity as being in slow and terminal decline. Now, we may have better gadgets and superior technology than did previous generations, but technology is cumulative. All we do is add a little bit to what the people before us discovered and invented. That doesn't mean we are smarter than them. Is Elon Musk smarter than Albert Einstein or Galileo or Johann Kepler? Or is he simply standing on the shoulders of their achievements? In the Bible, the ancients are seen as a source of wisdom. They are viewed as further up the mountain we have fallen from and thus considerably closer to God. That's a way of thinking that perhaps we need to recapture. The story continues in verse 11. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Here, we see that everything God foretold in those boyhood dreams of Joseph has come to fruition. Joseph has become the savior and the protector of his people. Verse 13. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and at the harvests you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Now, concerning Joseph's economic policy, Derek Kidner says helpfully here, it was axiomatic in the ancient world that one paid one's way so long as one had anything to part with, including in the last resort one's liberty. Israelite law accepted the principle while modifying it with the right of redemption. So Joseph isn't innovating here. He was simply acting wisely in accordance with the accepted practice of the region. The net result of this policy was that all the land of Egypt, apart from the land owned by the priesthood, became the possession and property of Pharaoh, and the people were reduced to the status of tenant farmers. Verse 27 goes on to say, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So, the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Now, hear that. Jacob was 130 years old back in verse 9. Well, here in verse 28, he's 147 years old. Remember that the Bible skips a whole lot of mundane detail. We're getting the highlights and the condensed version of events. And just notice again that the patriarchal lifespan was about twice as long as our lifespan. More than that, actually, if you think about Isaac and Abraham. Isaac lived to 180, Abraham to 175. So when you hear that people found Sarah very attractive in her 60s, I don't think that detail needs to embarrass us. (laughs) My goodness, if people are living more than twice as long as we are, then Sarah at 60 looked 30 or maybe 25, and Abraham at 100 might have looked 50 or 45. When we read these stories, we just have to keep some of those details present in our minds. Verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. Now, in general, I love the ESV, as you can tell. We do the podcast from the ESV. I have no plans to change that, but this is not a super helpful translation. The NRSV has verse 30 this way. When I lie down with my ancestors, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. That is far closer to the original Hebrew. And it helps preserve the essence of what Jacob is saying. He is not saying that he is looking forward to lying down with his ancestors in the burial cave. He is saying that when he is with his ancestors, put his body in the burial cave. Jacob had a hope that went way beyond the grave. Verse 31. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now, maybe you know that our English translations of the Old Testament are based on the Hebrew Masoretic text, whereas the Bible of the early church was actually the Greek translation known as the Septuagint or the LXX. However, in Hebrew, the original text did not have vowel pointings. I don't know how much you know about Hebrew, but Hebrew, all words are made from a three-consonant stem. And originally, they didn't have vowel pointings. And and so this word here, translated as bed, can also be staff, depending on how you point the consonants, what what vowel pointings you put in. Which is why, in the New Testament, when this scene is recalled, it has Jacob bowing over his staff, not his bed. You remember that? Hebrews 11.21 says, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So which is it, bed or staff? Well, with all due respect to the incredible Bible scholars who produce our English versions, if I have to choose between a 20th or 21st century English scholar and a 1st century Hebrew-speaking Torah-reading apostle, I'm going with the apostle. I think the point is the one we made earlier. I think the apostles are picturing Jacob as a sojourner. To the very end, for all of his 147 years, this man was a traveler. Thus, it is very appropriate that he speaks his final words, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into of the Word. If you've appreciated the End of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart, the Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your Word